Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm delighted to share this series is in partnership with Heck. Being an independent and family-owned business, they pull out all the stops to bring that farmer's market quality to the supermarket shelf. If you believe that healthy eating is expensive, you're not alone. The BBC say up to 80% of the UK struggle to afford healthy food. But let me assure you, it just isn't true. And importantly, cheap does not necessarily mean unhealthy. Yet one food I cannot defend is cheap sausages. You know the ones I mean. Seriously, buy the food you can afford and enjoy it. But if you love sausages, you'll love heck. There's chicken, pork, veggie and all sorts of varieties in your local supermarket or check out heckfood.co.uk. And remember, when it comes to sausages, the healthiest tend to be those with a high meat or veg content because it usually means there's less unnecessary stuff being used to bulk them out. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought a podcast on a mission to equip you with all the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic, and author of Renourish and Top of Your Game. In each episode, I'll be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. It is believed over 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder, and around 25% of those affected by an eating disorder are male. Eating disorders are complex. They have no one sole cause. But we know from research that individuals might be predisposed due to their genetic or biological makeup. Although many eating disorders develop during adolescence, it's not at all unusual for people to develop eating disorders earlier or later in life, and they can have devastating effects. But eating disorders are treatable with the right support and knowledge. Joining me to share her experience is Talia Cicchelli, an experienced registered dietitian who has worked in inpatient eating disorder units, and I am proud to share that she works with me at Retrition in my Harley Street clinic. Hello, Talia. Hi. It's so refreshing and lovely to have a Retrition team member here I with know, us. I feel so honoured. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's it's wonderful. I mean, we should be thanking you for oh. sharing your wonderful expertise today, and I'd love to start by asking you. How can you actually tell if someone has an eating disorder? Yeah. So I think, first of all, it's really important to point out that you can't just tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder or not. Um, research actually suggests that about 80% of people living with an eating disorder aren't underweight. And mm. I think society, there's this um, belief that the main eating disorder is actually anorexia nervosa, which is actually the least common of the eating disorders. So I think it's just really important to point that out, that there's people in healthy bodies that are experiencing eating disorders. Well, that's so important because I, I think yeah. you're right. Everybody assumes that a skeletal type of frame yes. yeah. is what an eating disorder is, whereas, like you said, surely other eating disorders are present in people of any shape and any size. Shape. Yep. Yep. Also, any age as well, mm. and gender, which 
is important to note. No, completely. Yeah. And I mean, I was doing some research and Professor John Morgan at Leeds, um, the Leeds Partnership NHS Foundation Trust, said that they've designed something called the SCOF, which... Yes. And when I say scoff, that <laughs> sounds what? very yeah. unusual, but it's yeah. actually a screening tool. So we're talking about S for Sierra, C for Charlie, mm-hmm. O for Oscar, F for Foxtrot and F for Foxtrot. <laughs> That's my phonetical <laughs> way of describing things there coming out. But that that is a tool used to identify a possible eating disorder. So a score of two or more on this is apparently a positive screen. Um, Have you come across this? um, And do you know much about the screening process? Yeah, so I personally haven't used this in my practice because where I've worked, um, so in inpatient units, the patients have already been assessed and diagnosed Mm. with the eating disorder. Um, But I definitely know that there are GPs that use this screening tool Mm. or um, other health professionals that work in the community um, and it's a really good tool yeah. just to work within any of their assessments to to try and spot if someone might have a disordered relationship with food. Of course, because a yeah. GP is often a first point of call before yes. um, obviously transferring to, well, an inpatient ward would be a bit more extreme. I'll let you explain that in a moment. But the criteria, I've got some examples in front of me. So the SCOFF stands for, do you ever make yourself sick because you feel uncomfortably full? That's question one. Then we've got, do you worry you have lost control over how much you eat? Have you recently lost more than one stone in a three-month period? Do you believe yourself to be fat when others say you're too thin? And finally, would you say that food dominates your life? So I I think some quite um, very, very intrusive and serious questions Mm. to raise to anybody. So if someone were to obviously have two or more of these... They could potentially end up in an inpatient work, which is where, which is where you work. Um, what actually happens on an inpatient ward, and w- what's the criteria to get there? Yeah, so inpatient wards um, it varies depending on, I guess, the person's background, um, how long they've had the eating disorder for, and the severity of it. So. Uh, mostly with the NHS, we would uh, accept clients that are quite severely underweight. Mm. So BMIs less than 15. Yeah. Um, so anywhere from BMIs of 8 to 10 up to about 15. So we're talking very, very unwell patients. Well, yeah, when you compare a healthy BMI of maybe what, 19 or 19, upwards. 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is extremely yeah. low. So yeah. low BMIs. Low BMIs. Um, they can be medically... So generally, if you're on an inpatient unit, you're medically at risk as well. So um, it could be that, you know, markers like blood pressure or heart rate, um, body temperature, they're... Uh, physical criteria that are usually looked at before um, someone is admitted into the hospital. Mm. Um, The person could be at extreme risk of what we call refeeding syndrome, Mm. where if we feed them too quickly, they can become quite critically unwell. Gosh, I mean, there's so many things to be aware of, which is why I guess it's important to work in in an inpatient environment where people have have a support network around them. Yeah. Um, so medically, yeah, medically unstable is is what yeah. would normally. Um, so you also mentioned um, when we started, you said anorexia isn't the most common mm. type of eating disorder. So yeah. perhaps we should start the podcast with describing what various types of eating disorders there are, or perhaps any you know for anyone that's not so familiar mm. with the topic. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So there are. Um, so we have a set of criteria for eating disorders it's the dsm is the um diagnostic statistical manual manual. (laughs) so do you know when i was studying it was dsm five it's probably now dsm i think it's still five is it still five yeah yeah from my knowledge Mm -hmm. um so there's actually eight different types of eating disorders uh listed in the dsm five um and i guess the most common that we would hear about would be anorexia nervosa which is um where a person uh restricts their energy intake below what is sort of necessary to maintain a healthy weight. Um, they also have an intense fear of weight gain and mm. fear of um, getting fat and a body image disturbance. And that's the most commonly um, noted one. Yes. So yep. what about terms like orthorexia? Yes. So orthorexia isn't actually in the DSM. Uh, five at the moment Um, but orthorexia it's really an unhealthy obsession uh, with eating 
pure or clean, so sort of extreme healthy eating. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something we're definitely seeing more of. Yes, I think we'll touch on orthorexia a little bit yeah. later. Cause I think the word ortho in Greek means pure. Yeah. And then the rexia is like a derivative from anorexia. And and then the other two, obviously, I think people would, would want a definition for would be binge eating. Yes, yeah. So binge eating and bulimia, I think people sometimes get confused between the two. Mm. Um, in both of these, you um experiencing loss of control with eating. But where it differs is that with bulimia, you have the compensatory behaviours. Um, so that could be anything from excessive exercise, uh, purging, laxative misuse um whereas in binge eating you don't have that that Mm. compensation occur it's interesting you said laxative use because i think a lot of people just assume that bulimia is is purging making yourself sick whereas actually using a laxative is a way of purging the body definitely yes yeah and that's obviously quite a dangerous thing there so society obviously has a crazy insatiable interest in how people look um and the likes of the beauty industry and its narrow <laughs> scopes it's something we've discussed a lot on these podcasts but it makes billions of pounds based mm. on people's insecurities and do you think we ha- understand the extent to which stereotypical models affect our mental health i don't think we do unfortunately um you know, there's so much out there in in terms of the, I guess, inaccurate representation of the human body and the differences in shape and size. Um, and then there's that extra element of, you know, photoshopping and mm. touch-ups and, it, you know, it's just really sending the wrong message out. Yeah. Um, Even on models, I find yeah. that's very interesting is when you're going into um, some main high street shops... Yeah. The mannequins. Oh, yes. (laughs) They don't look like anyone I know. No. And it's the same for the men. Yes. They're complete different sizes and shapes. Actually, you posted um, a really good photo on your stories a few weeks ago about the mannequin that had the the bulldog clips holding in the dress. Yes. Yes. I saw yeah. it. I couldn't believe what yeah. I was seeing. This was mm-hmm. on a really high, um, well, highly popular retailer online fashion store. And they'd forgotten to Photoshop out the mm. clips that were holding the outfit on because obviously it just, the model was so small. Yeah. It was just unrealistic. I think um, Instagram. So Instagram was recently ranked as having the most detrimental effect on young people's mental yes. health. I know you specialize in pediatrics as well. but. Yeah. But on one hand, it does help people like we've just discussed, us health professionals share information on a wider scale. What do you think about these platforms? I think if used in the right way, they can be they can have a really positive effect and a, a really fantastic source of information for people. Uh I guess it comes down to the, the person being able to filter out any mm. of the negative pages or followers. So I regularly recommend for my clients to do a cull. Oh. Um, so if someone doesn't inspire or educate you, um, doesn't make you feel like you know a better version of yourself, then to unfollow them. Yeah, strike them off. Yeah. There's also a um, for anyone listening a mute button. Which is if you're not quite brave enough to unfollow, (laughs) you can mute them, which is great. But it's really interesting because it it shouldn't social media be the last place we go to when we're feeling quite down. Yeah, yeah. But often it's the first seen as a source of yeah comfort, um, reassurance, um, and often it can be used in the wrong way. Do you have a lot of cases in your work at the moment? Let's say with your NHS work Mm -hmm. as well, where people do discuss social media platforms with you? Yes. Yeah. Um, So for a lot of my clients and, you know, the psychologists would recommend it as well that they actually sort of delete their social media for a Mm. short period of time during treatment um, because it can be very triggering. Well, it can be really triggering. And I think Photoshop and influencers showing or rather not showing the vulnerable Mm. side of their lives can be really unhelpful. Do you think it would help if there were an honest, um, more of an honest streak where everybody had to show at least one or two bad things that happened to them every day. Do you think that would help? That would be fantastic. Yeah, just making it more real. Yeah. yeah. No, that's exactly it. Because yeah. we we both know that as nutrition health professionals, that the majority of clients um, require psychological support. Yeah. So prior to working with a registered dietitian um, in an inpatient ward or outpatient with a registered nutritionist, can you explain the link that exists between disordered eating and mental health? <laughs> 
So we know that eating disorders are never just about the food itself. Um, Can you explain that? Because that's really, that's something I think a lot of people don't yeah, understand. Yeah. So, it, so why do people have eating disorders? Often it's, you know, we, we know that there's a genetic component to it and then we know there's that environmental aspect as well. Eating disorders are mental health illnesses and mm. often people will have other psychological comorbidities, yeah. comorbidities, so anxiety, depression. They may have experienced a lot of trauma in the past, mm. um, which, you know, all of this can sort of mesh into one very complex illness mm. that needs to be untangled. Yeah. And in order to do that, you know, if that that's not going to become untangled just by feeding someone, there's so much more depth to the illness than just being about food. So food is important for weight restoration and nutritional rehabilitation in those early stages. Um, often, you know, there are sort of a, a rough criteria as to when someone will benefit from um, engaging in psychological treatment. And we, we say that's around a BMI of 15 or 16 mm. um, because we know below that psychological um, functioning and the cognition um, is impacted of course. In quite negatively. Um, so food is really important to get them up to that stage of, of yeah. being ready for that Because how can the brain possibly... Feel? So if you are maintaining such a low body weight, even having psychological intervention will have no impact because yeah. you're just not feeding your brain. Yeah. Yeah. You're not taking it in. You're not able to really engage with, um, you know, the different activities that are required to... Yeah, to, to, yeah, to assist it's such with a it. common thing because I think so many people often say, and I hear this a lot in clinic, and I'm sure you hear it all the time. Oh, I love food. Yes, like I love it so much, but I fear it so yeah. much. That's very common. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that then? So, so one thing that we know with eating disorders is that when you restrict your intake and you um, lose weight to below your healthy weight range, mm. you actually become obsessed with food and it's your mm. body's way of trying to get you to eat more. So there was a really, um, so probably, interesting. probably our most um, exciting study is the Ansel Keys study. So the mm. starvation study, Minnesota study, it has yeah. multiple names, but that sort of forms the, the basis of our knowledge of how the body is impacted both physically and psychologically when someone is in a starved state. Um, and just to give you a bit of background, this was a study that um, took place in the 1940s, so during World War II. War. Yeah. And it was a group of conscientious objectors. Um, and it was a, a year-long study. And the, the main reason for it was to observe how they, um, as a population, they could safely refeed prisoners of war. So... Um, these men were, um, so it was over a 12-month period and what they wanted to look at was the effect of starvation on the body. Mm. So the first three months they were given a normal intake for them and they underwent a whole bunch of tests testing their psychological and physical ability and then for six months their rations were basically halved and what they found during that six-month period not only did they lose um, I think it was 25% of their body weight um, and lots of physical sort of side effects but cognitively um, the men one of the things they found was that they became obsessed with food. Mm. So, um, you know, for men during that time, for them to look through recipe books, tear out recipes, they, uh, one gentleman, I think, replaced a, a photo of his family with photo of food. Wow. Um, they would hoard food as well. Um, one gentleman actually went on a binge. So they went on daily walks um, and one sort of did a, a ice cream crawl mm. um, and he actually got removed from the uh, program because wow. he broke the criteria. So that state of restriction actually drove him to go out, break the rules and go and eat ice cream. It's it's one of my favourite studies yeah. in, a, in a way that's very wrong, actually. Just mm. call it a favourite study, yeah. but it just goes to show the impact on your mind when you are starving. Yes. That's why people constantly think of it because it's almost like something they won't allow themselves and then the brain wants you to eat more. Yeah. I also read some interesting research recently that said that the more starved you are, your gut produces even more happy hormone or something mm -hmm. to help yes. protect you. Yes. 
So have you heard a bit about that as well with the gut bacteria now? So with, so more so, yeah, the your gut hormones. So mm. we know that when the body is in a state of restriction, there's a few changes to your gut hormones. Mm. So one is the serotonin. Yeah. So we know that 90% of serotonin is produced in our gut. So that's a really important hormone. Um, decreased levels actually trigger carbohydrate cravings. Yes. So that's the body's way of saying I need more carbohydrate. The other two are your leptin. Mm. So leptin is um, a hormone that suppresses appetite. So it's low in restriction, which then says to your body, it actually increases your hunger levels. And then there's uh, ghrelin, which normally triggers hunger. Um, And again, so it's going to do the opposite to try and get your body to do more. It's, it's so incredible, the, yeah. the natural adaption and survival of the human body. So you're really not going crazy when you're malnourished. It is that your body is sending you all these symptoms, yes. which is why. I mean, I remember on an anecdotal level, when I wasn't looking after myself back in the music industry days, this is 10 plus years ago now, I remember all I could think about going to bed every evening was food. Yeah. Always, always. And I just couldn't understand why. Yeah. That's definitely one of yeah. the, the side effects. So uh, dreaming about food is mm. something that my clients will commonly tell me about. Yeah, and that's why it's very important. It's what we do in the nutrition clinic, and it's why we have people like yourself, and we work with clients to explain. Cause once you understand why, it makes sense a little bit more. Definitely, yeah. So with anorexia, if we just go back, because um, I think a lot of people will be able to perhaps know someone or have seen this in the media a bit more, it has the highest mortality rate of all mental health illnesses. So what are the effects that anorexia can have on the body? Mm, There's so many. Um, But definitely, so if we bring it back to the starvation study, Mm. what we see a lot in anorexia nervosa was seen in that study as well. So um, we know physically due to a lack of nutrition, we have uh, nutritional deficiencies. Um, When your body lacks calcium, that Mm. can actually lead to the development of osteoporosis later in life. And that is something that's not reversible. Um, And unfortunately, even when you know, my clients and patients do recover, that's something that they'll have to live with for the rest of their lives and that's a really important one. Well, is it because obviously when your bone density develops up until is it the age of 25 peak bone mass? Yes. And of course, no matter what age you are, that's going to have a huge impact. Yeah. Either delay it or it's a bit late and you've kind of damaged it. Yes. So, yeah. so that's very serious. Yeah. It's a silent thing, osteoporosis Definitely, a lot of the time. Yeah, so it's undiagnosed. You can only diagnose it with um, a DEXA scan. Mm, yeah, Which isn't something everyone would have no, on the NHS. No. And I guess the other thing to point out with osteoporosis is that it's not just from the nutrition. It's actually being underweight and the change in your hormone level. So it's actually the body's ability to absorb the calcium mm. as well. I also read that circulating um, circulating oestrogen protects mm. your bone mass as well. So if you're not getting periods, yes, that's also going to have a knock-on effect. Yes, yeah. Hormone function is something else that um, is impacted during or for people suffering from anorexia nervosa. Great. Yeah. So, so loss of menstruation, as you yeah. said, is something that's quite common. Okay, so what yep. else? We've got loss of menstruation, yep. we've got osteoporosis. Um, yep, so things like fatigue, mm. um, mood swings, yeah. reduced concentration, depression, um, low heart rate and blood pressure. You can lose your hair. Your skin can become really dry. Um, you can actually grow extra hair on mm. your arms and on your body, and that's your body's way of trying to keep you warm. Mm. So... Um, that's something else. Um, you can feel cold all the time, bruise easily. And I think the other one that a lot of people don't recognise is the impact it has on your gut health. Ah, yes. Could we touch on that a little yeah. bit more? Yeah. So with eating disorders, it's extremely common to have symptoms um, very similar to IBS. So diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, bloating, excessive wind. Mm. Um, Because if we think that when your body isn't receiving enough of the nutrition that it needs and your body starts to lose weight, it needs to get the energy from somewhere. And the body starts to break down body fat and then protein. 
and turns that into energy. So the protein comes from our muscles and it's not just the muscles in our arms and our legs, it's from our internal organs as well. So everything from your stomach to your intestines your to your heart. Yeah. Mm. Um, that loses strength. So if your GI tract is losing its strength, it's losing its ability to absorb the nutrients from your food. It's losing the ability to digest the food um, so everything's moving a lot more slowly through your digestive system, which can lead to constipation. Also, if you're not having much food, the volume of food is reduced, so there's not much to go through as well. So then when someone's going through the weight restoration period and we're asking them to eat more, it can be a very uncomfortable experience Mm. as your body has to relearn to to digest normal size portions oh, again. It's one of the most common things and one of the most common questions I get asked and I see a lot in clinic of anyone in recovery at a healthy state even is I'm still bloated every day. I'm yeah. in agony when I'm trying to digest my food. I'm trying to eat what I should be, but yeah. it's so difficult. But it does get better, doesn't it? Does. It does, yes. I mean, is it possible to recover from an eating disorder? That's the question everyone's yes. probably thinking. It is. It very much is. Um, the best chance of recovery is... Um, after the first three years of being diagnosed. So please, please seek help early on. Um, You know, even after that three-year window, though, you can definitely still recover. Yeah. Uh, It is, it's going to be very challenging regardless of what stage you are at during Mm. recovery, but it is possible. Um, So about 50% of people with anorexia nervosa um, will recover. That's good. Um, and then there's about a, a 30% chance of improving um, and being able to live mm. a higher quality of life. But I also did read that, of course, the remaining 20% then will remain chronically ill forever. Yes. So I guess that three-year window yeah. is quite important. Yeah. And similarly, research into bulimia suggests that 45% make a full recovery and yeah. 27% improve considerably, but 23% still suffer it's chronically. Still, yeah, it's still a large number of people that do not recover, unfortunately. Well, I think that's why we're so lucky um, to have facilities in this country um, on the NHS and also in the facilities like we have in the Retrition Clinic, just to have some good people to talk to and see, to get some good advice. And I mean, some people turn to things like weight loss or gastric bands. That's something Mm. I hear a lot of. I've had so many people with a gastric band that have a disordered relationship with food. What's your view on this? Don't do it if you still have an eating disorder or disordered Mm. relationship with food. I have seen several clients that have had gastric surgery or gastric bands and it has made their eating disorder a whole lot worse. Mm. It is so hard to then try and manage your relationship with food when the gastric surgery is really making you have to restrict in a way that it's it's really hard to manage both at the same time. so, you know, we're not saying that you can't have those surgeries, mm. but do heal your relationship with food first. Well, that's the difficult thing. Now, this is really controversial. I didn't actually intend on yeah. discussing this <laughs> with you, but it just popped into my head. Um, the rise of people getting obviously gastric bands on the NHS anyway, mm. with the rise in obviously obesity. But are these people screened for disordered eating because you can be any shape or size and have an eating disorder and obesity isn't classified as an eating disorder I'm just discussing this I'm not saying I'm an expert in gastric band surgery I am not but it's very interesting because like you've just said it can make the problem worse so it's not a solution no because it doesn't it's not teaching you no any I guess what's missing the big piece of the puzzle that's missing is the psychological treatment so if you have an eating disorder and then you um have a a physical you know what what Mm. some people think is a solution you're not getting any of the help for the mental side you know the mental illness i was always told recovery will be sped up if you see a psychologist and a nutritionist at the same time or dietitian because you've got that support definitely having both um, yeah. is what would be recommended. But um, So you asked about screening. The mm. screening, um, it, it does happen, but I think it varies depending on um, which service you're attending. So um, a previous NHS job that I had, I know that everyone saw a psychologist and a dietitian prior to 
and being accepted for surgery. Mm. Um, but I know when I was working back in Sydney, there were patients that were paying privately mm. in order to skip that screening process. Yeah. So it does it does vary yeah i think the yeah. paying private things i think the message ultimately is is try try not to have surgery if you really can it's just yeah. there must be other methods to turn to first that's a whole different podcast mm-hmm. i think i'll have to do yeah. one on that <laughs> hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, another subject is that the veg- veganism is quadrupled in yes. the last four years. It's an incredible amount. And I'm taking ethics out again. I have to say this and make it very clear when yeah. I discuss veganism because obviously it's great to want to help the environment and live a different lifestyle. It's It shouldn't be seen as a diet. But unfortunately, I see it in clinic. Mm-hmm. I see it. You see it too. Yeah. Okay, so the pressure to eat in a more environmentally friendly way, do you think that can be uh, fueling eating disorders as well? I think it can definitely increase the risk. So... About 50% of people that have an eating disorder present as being vegetarian or are following a vegan diet. So it's quite Mm. a high percentage. Yeah, it is. We know that often people will use vegetarianism or veganism as as a rule to cut out particular food groups as Mm -hmm. a way of restricting and controlling their intake. It's a bit of chicken and the egg, what came first, um... But often if I see someone in in clinic or on the inpatient unit, if they haven't been following that way of eating for more than 12 months, then we would actually recommend that that they reintroduce dairy and meat back into their diet. Well, on dairy, I also see a... um kind of correlation with gluten-free and dairy-free diets as well. I I almost hear every excuse not to eat under the sun. And it's it's difficult to know, obviously, if someone genuinely is or isn't these days. Yes, yeah. And I think there's now uh, more units accepting um, patients that are following vegan or vegetarian diets. I know when I first started in eating disorders, we didn't allow it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yes, we are quite strict. Um, but now, you know, I do have uh, vegan patients on mm. the eating disorders unit. It's just tough because you have to eat so much more food. So much more. And that's yeah. something to make very clear is that the energy in plant-based foods is significantly less. Yeah. So it's tricky. Yeah. So thinking that if you're already going to be uncomfortable with having, you know, the portions that we can make a bit more dense with meat and dairy products, you then have to eat more than that. And yeah, it is really There's only hard. so many pulses yeah. your stomach could probably yeah. handle at one yeah. point in time. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I think will ring home. A lot of people listening may be able to identify with is that if you are following a plant-based diet, which can be a great thing, and it's mm. good actually that the eating disorder wards take this now because ethically speaking, it is a choice that is more popular. Exactly. So yeah. times have to change. Yeah. But what are the most common symptoms someone can display? So for anybody at home that maybe has someone they know, would it be... Um, 
over-exercising even? Are there some other things, obsession around food that someone might, that you can see, that you can pick up on easily? Yeah, so um, I, I just wanted to add that mm. BEAT has a really, yeah, has really good resources about this. Great. Um, but generally, because we know eating disorders, it's not black and white, it's very grey, so it can be tricky to work out um, if someone is displaying signs of, of disordered eating but I guess the, the typical ones would be that increased obsession with food. Mm. So could be weighing food, counting calories, um, avoiding going out, eating with friends and family because they're not sure of the food that will be available, um, being, um, you know, sort of talking about being more feeling guilty if mm. you've had a piece of cake when mm. you, you never used to feel guilty about that, cutting out whole food groups, going on diets when... You, there's no yeah. need for it. Um, that preoccupation with weight and shape. It might be that someone um, starts to wear different clothes mm. or um, they stop going out to the shops or they want to cook everything but then they don't eat it or they only cook for themselves That's and don't let an others cook for one. them. Yeah, I hear a lot of that, yeah. the reporting um, of people saying, oh, well, I just don't feel comfortable if anyone else cooks for me at home. I can't yeah. let my mum do it. I won't let my boyfriend do it yeah. or my girlfriend if, it, if it's a male client. Yeah. That that's something I think is quite a telltale sign but there's a balance with everything now you mentioned calories and I think at the moment there's such a buzz around calories and yes. I actually did an episode with a geneticist professor Giles Yo, and he said a calorie is not a calorie mm. and we know that energy and energy out matters but we're at a point now in society in the UK where soon calories will be available in all mm. restaurants yeah. because we have two ends of the spectrum here. Eating disorders are going up and we also have levels of obesity to contend with. Where do you sit on the opinion of a calorie? It's a very vast, broad <laughs> question. Um, I think as a general population, unless you have the education behind what a calorie is and what it means, it's not very helpful to know that X food provides 400 calories. Yeah. What does that actually mean? Yeah. Um, working with eating disorder clients, it makes it really tough when the calories are on every single bit of food, trying to get um, clients to go out shopping or to eat at a cafe is extremely difficult because they will look at every single packet of food and compare the nutritional content. Mm. I've had clients that will buy packaged sandwiches pull them out of the packet, weigh them, and then compare it to the nutritional content on the back of the packet. Mm. It's very distressing. Mm. Um, but then I can see on the flip side for the overweight and obese population that if you have that education about what does a 400-calorie meal look like, that, yes, it would be helpful. So I think it, it will, at the end of the day, in you know a couple of years, five years' time, come down to educating mm -hmm. the population about what to do with that information. I think that's really important to approach. And also, in, if you're looking at the middle ground and even in the fitness industry, I think there's a lot of people talking about calories that perhaps don't understand the full picture. Yeah. So, yes, it's useful information, but I think you display both sides of that argument pretty, <laughs> pretty well yeah. and balanced there. Yeah. So many people associate eating disorders with teenage girls, but, I mean, the reality is that basically anybody can fall a victim yes. and a quarter of eating disorders suffer as a male. Yes, yeah. I mean, why do you think the stereotype is there? Oh, I think it's something just from the past. The teenage, white, you know, rich yeah. girl. Yeah. Um, but we know that it can be... You know, any race, any age. I've had eating disorders clients on inpatient units as young as nine years of age, mm. um, and as old as you know mid sixties. So, it can happen to anyone. Mm. Um, and I think you know, particularly with the males. So we know that a quarter of uh, people with eating disorders are male, but mm. you probably wouldn't think that. Yeah. Do you think it's because men are less likely to come forwards? I think so. And I think that's why we're now seeing an increasing number of men um, seeking help and, you know, they're on eating disorder units is because they've actually sought treatment. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. We had um, James McVeigh, who's a singer in a band called The Vamps, yeah. um, in season one of, of Food for Thought. And I was really blown away by, as a young male, mm. um, and a celebrity essentially 
talking about his experience with his relationship with food, it was quite impressive because we're actually quite used to females speaking mm. about this thing. And when you hear a male voice, it's the same with Gary Barlow. He was discussing yeah. how he had bulimia. He wrote about it in his book. So it's very clear that anybody can fall victim. But why is it so important to focus on nourishment rather than perhaps the number on the scales? So if we could just explain to everyone why the scales perhaps may not be the best place to focus our energy. Yeah. So what does the number on the scale actually give you? It doesn't give you an indication of how physically healthy your body is, how good you know your social connections are, how well you're doing at work. It doesn't give you any indication of that it is just a number and unfortunately there is such a huge focus even in recovery um you know if you get to this weight you will be at a better place but then what do you do after that so Mm. I try and move away from knowing well not knowing but giving just a one number sort of as a as a target yeah um and focusing on those other aspects of health and life like your social and physical health it must be difficult because of course as a health professional you have to have a cutoff point yeah you have to have a bmi clarification for the hospital environment but it's just the same as every eating disorder being unique you could have 10 people lined up in this room right now with anorexia but every single type of anorexia would be different so surely every single number or every single target should be different It must be an incredibly overwhelming um, place to work in. And a lot of the time, the number on the scales is so inaccurate. I don't think it can represent health at all. No. So where would you say people can go for help if they suspect or know that they have an eating disorder? You've mentioned BEAT. Yes, so BEAT's a really good um, online uh, resource. Your GP would probably be the number one sort of health professional so they're usually the the first person to see someone and then they are able to refer on to relevant services Um, even just talking to someone that you trust and feel comfortable disclosing that information to Um, there's also a really great uh, resource called feed your instinct which is an online checklist that parents can use for their children and it goes through a whole list of eating and well-being questions and then at the end you can actually generate a report to hand to your GP or health professional. That is brilliant. So that's a really fantastic tool if you're worried about your child or another young person that you know. I would say it's really important to maximise these types of resources rather than turning to social media. Yes, definitely. Um, I see, well, I get regular DMs asking about eating disorders Mm. and, of course, I can't help over Instagram. And anyone that does, you should be a little bit wary of because they don't know anything about a health history or case. With um, one rise in particular of intuitive eating, now I've seen a lot of people talking about intuitive eating is going to help my eating disorder. How does that work with someone like yourself working in an inpatient environment? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so intuitive eating uh, isn't usually something we focus on on an inpatient unit. Mm. Um, The main focus is on um, ensuring that you're receiving adequate amounts of food, you're restoring your weight. Intuitive eating is something that personally I would start to teach some of those principles once someone is within their healthy weight range and... um, they're in that state of mind that they can now start to move off a structured meal plan because we know in eating disorders, meal plans are actually really important in those initial phases. Quite different. is essential. Yeah, definitely. Um, So definitely there's a lot of principles of intuitive eating that I really value in disordered eating because I've, um, you know, even personally through uh, a couple of friends that have had eating disorders, they sort of said to me in their experience, they recovered, they got to their healthy weight and then they were just left on their own. Mm. They didn't know what hunger Mm. felt like, what fullness felt like, how to manage and be flexible with their eating, which is really key as the last step for for recovery. Yeah, and that really is some of the principles of intuitive eating and rejecting diet culture and that little voice inside your head that tells you, the food police we call it, you should or shouldn't do that. But it's good to make the clarification that it's not going to be what we would use in an eating disorder environment. No, I mean, if you're underweight, those hunger and fullness signals aren't there. So there's no way that you're going to be 
able to tune in, no. mostly you're going to say you're not hungry. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to weight restore if you're intuitively eating at no. a very low weight. I think it's like everything, that there are so many good principles out there, but there is no one size fits all. Yes. And you have to pull and take little bits of intuitive eating yeah. or of something else and make it work for you. So that leads me on, Tali, to some questions we've had from followers. Yes, excellent. Okay. Um, so Mary has said, my friend has been eating less and cutting more things out of her diet, claiming she has intolerances. Mm-hmm. Is it really possible to develop so many intolerances in such a short space of time or should I be worried about her? I would be a bit worried. I'd be a bit cluey about what these intolerances are and why there are so many Mm. that have just popped up, as Mary said. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of uh, investigation, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think another thing, like we discussed with vegetarian or vegan diets before, someone having a lot of intolerances can sometimes also be an excuse for a way to not eat. Obviously not for everyone. There will be people out there with genuine intolerances. Uh, Leah has said, can disordered eating affect your sleep? I've just started receiving treatment for anorexia and have noticed some changes in my sleeping patterns. Yes, it can definitely. Um, Both ways. Uh, So there are some clients that the treatment process will be exhausting. Mm. So you actually find that you might want to nap during the day. You sleep really well at night. It's your body's way of giving you the rest um, and time to start to repair. Um, And then there's others that will be up all night. Um, and are unable to sleep. So it can definitely impact you in different ways. Oh, gosh, yeah, of course. I mean, if your body's a bit starved of fuel, shutting down must be extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, Ash has asked, on weeks when I'm super stressed, I eat less. Does this count as disordered eating? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, good, because I think I think a lot of us go through periods where, see, when I'm stressed, you I eat more. Eat more. I yeah. do too, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, I don't know what's, I just, I just yeah. want to keep eating. Yeah. I think it's just that I enjoy eating so much, it just takes the edge off the yeah. stress. Yeah, a bit of a distraction. <laughs> I know, not great for my gut, yeah. might I say. Oh, we've got a Rhea, that's very similar <laughs> to my name. Rhea has said, I want to be healthy weight, but also know that it's a cause of, oh. So she's basically said, is it a calories in versus calories out uh, thing? How do I monitor my intake but not obsess over it? I'd recommend to get some help with that one. Some yeah. individual advice is, is recommended. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We are getting in touch with the Retrition yeah. Clinic. We are always here to help. I think um, there is a way of looking at your weight maintenance without having to calorie count, yes. but you definitely needed someone that knows what they're doing. And the last question is from Lucy. I have recently recovered from an eating disorder and feel so grateful to be in a better place of food again. How can I safely educate myself on how to nourish my body moving forwards? I just don't know who to trust. Oh, again... You need the individual advice. Mm. Please, please go and see someone that specialises mm. in eating disorders to help you. Yeah. A hundred percent. And knowing who to trust, um, if you're looking for nutritional advice, you generally speaking, anybody working in inpatient areas or with severe eating disorders should be a registered dietitian. Yeah. Um, and you're looking for nutritionists that are also registered nutritionists if you're looking in the general public domain. So yeah. have a look out for those. So we are now moving on to a slightly more chirpy part of the podcast, and that is my fact or fiction round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. So eating disorders are a choice. No. Oh, oh. <laughs> Fiction. Fiction. <laughs> um, as long as someone isn't emaciated, they aren't sick. Uh, fiction. Maintaining a healthy weight means eating less food. Fiction. Eating disorder behaviours only focus on food. Fiction. Ooh. <laughs> Calorie <laughs> count. This is, this is good. Fictions. Lots of fictions. <laughs> Counting calories can help me manage my weight. That's a bit, it, it can and it can't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a faction, that one. <laughs> faction, yeah. Definite faction. Um, being overweight means you can't have an eating disorder. Fiction. Eating disorders are not deadly. Fiction. People cannot have more than one eating disorder. Fiction. Oh, they're all fictions today. Yeah. So with eating disorders <laughs> that... You can move from one to the other. People might not know that. So you could have anorexia nervosa and it develops into bulimia and it develops into binge eating. 
That's quite a yeah. common one, I think, yeah. anorexia to bulimia yeah. or binge eating. Yeah. Um, anorexia is the only serious eating disorder. Fiction. Everyone has a little bit of an eating disorder. Fiction. Ooh. See, I, I wouldn't would say. Been, I don't I w- know. Well, I, it's, it's the terminology there. I would say mm. disordered eating, yes. not eating disorder. Bingo. That is why you are the expert on the podcast today. Talia, thank you so much. That nearly wraps up this episode. But as with every guest, we finish with a food for thought. So my food for thought today would be that eating disorders are complex mental illnesses with no single cause. They can affect both men and women. And embarking on any kind of diet can mean you're more vulnerable to an eating disorder or this can potentially change your relationship with food. It can provide a powerful urge to eat little to nothing or conversely to consume excessive quantities of food. As we've discussed today, I truly believe there is absolutely no place for restriction or the elimination of whole food groups in a healthy relationship with food. So instead of focusing on what you can't eat, focus on what you can and should be eating. And if you're in need of some help with disordered eating, please do speak to your local GP in the first instance because they are the people that can refer you when required. I should also add that someone recovering from any kind of eating disorder should only ever receive nutrition advice from either a registered dietitian or a registered nutritionist whose names are followed by either an RD or R Nutra title. For anyone struggling to find treatment, because we know the waiting lists are very long on the NHS, I would encourage you to speak to The Beat. They're a wonderful online eating disorder charity whose free helpline is open 365 days a year. It's an invaluable source to so many, and we're so proud to support it at Retrition. So, Talia, if we could have your food for thought for today's podcast, what would that be? I think... It would be if you are living with an eating disorder, please don't feel like you're alone because that's what the eating disorder wants you to feel. Um, So please know that you can seek help and that there are so many people that can help you, um, that recovery is possible and that, you know, I, I think I agree with you that my philosophy is that you can include all foods in your diet but it's about balancing out um, the different food groups for what works for you as an individual um, and to balance not only the food that you eat but all other aspects of life, so your social and physical health, um, mental health as well. Wow, that's lovely. I think that's a really great way to wrap up this episode. It's a 360-degree picture completely. Talia, thank you so much for coming on Food for Thought. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. It really is heartening to know there's such a craving to hear from expert voices in a world full of confusing advice. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love what's coming next week. So make sure you click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And please do leave a five-star review. It really does help to get our podcast out there and hopefully help more people. So we'd really appreciate it. For more information about my Retrition Clinic, books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com, subscribe to my newsletter, and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 